0: Welcome to the
1: weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Um, I get the blessing of getting to open up the word of God with you guys today and we're going to be looking at Ephesians and just some stuff that's been really strong on my heart, interwoven and So part of this is kind of testimonial to a certain degree. So um, if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start from verse 15. And that's going to be our text for today. Verse 15, right through to the end of the chapter, chapter, uh, verse 23. Chapter 1, sorry. Verse 15 to verse 23. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you and we are, well, we want to be open to your word. We want to have ears that are ready to hear, Lord, and a, a heart that's ready to receive what it is that you're saying. But Lord, I'm also aware of the fact that often I look at your word and it's like I'm looking into a mirror and I walk away and I don't clean my face. So I pray that today we would look at your word and be Hearers and doers of it, Lord, that I would apply it to my heart, that we would take it and run with it, Lord. I just thank you for this opportunity that we've got. It's um, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited of what you're going to do with us and in, in us and through us and for your name, Lord. So thank you, thank you for this family, thank you for this home, thank you for your word, and thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's read Paul's writing a letter to a group of people much like us. If Ephesus was a church that was Greek, Greco-Roman, Hellenistic in culture, and there was a severe amount of idol worship. The main, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the main tourist attraction in that area. It was a temple to Artemis or Diana, where it was, it was a, a temple, she was the goddess of fertility, and you would go there and... Just do your thing like we do on a Saturday night, or not we, but is done on a Saturday night, on a Friday night out here in London, where um, people just go and have sex and and have fun, and, and, and all in the name of this ideal, this idol that they had in front of them. And there weren't many Jews, there were a few. So this was written predominantly to Christians in a secular society where idolatry was heavy, And I think we can all recognize that. We are Christians in a secular society living amongst a culture which is majorly resting on idolatry. Paul starts this um, prayer, really what we're looking at is a prayer. He starts it with thankfulness. He gives thanks because of the fact that they love Jesus. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you. And you can already see the fondness that he already has as he's looking to the Ephesians, as he's looking to these guys. He actually later on spent three years with this church pastoring them. It's the longest time he spent in one place. And the fondness already that he has, and this is one of the letters where it said that Romans is the clearest communication of the gospel. And Ephesians is the most expressive and In regards to that, he uses words like, you know, the unsearchable riches of grace, the awesome splendor of majesty. You know, he just, he, it's just such an expression of the gospel in such a rich fashion. It's very rich and expressive. And I think it has part to do with his love for the Ephesians. So just so you know where these guys are coming from, where, 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 who was receiving this text and and, and why it was being written. (laughs) Paul's greatest desire for these guys is that they would know the Father. Simple. That you would have the spirit of revelation knowledge in him. That was his desire. That's his prayer, to know him. And actually, as I've seen it from this perspective, it's kind of changed the way I view Ephesians completely. Even Ephesians 6, and we'll touch on that at the end with regards to the armor of God. It's huge. Of all the things he could pray for, of all the things he could intercede for, it's this. That you would know him. Him, our Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm, what do I wanna know? When am I gonna get married? When am I gonna stop doing shift work? Wonder if Chelsea's gonna win the league. I'm so occupied by stuff that's of some importance, but he's like, get your mind off of this and set it on him. In First John, chapter 5, verse 20. We're going to do a lot of just reading through scriptures, and so maybe write the references down and check them out. I'll read them out with you. Sorry, I'm not fancy with overheads and projectors and stuff, so uh, old, old school style. John writes this in his first epistle, chapter 5. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. In the Gospel of John chapter 17, verse three, again John says, "And this is eternal life, that you would know that they would know you. He's praying to the Father, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. It sounds. Too simple to be true in our perception of things. But as we come to know and we understand, and we, this is what we're hoping to scrape the surface of, the, the excuse my English and grammar, the bigness of God. This is, this is what we're going to touch on very briefly. And this is life. This will be eternity. This is our aim, our goal, our passion. We aim to introduce people to Jesus. We aim to know Jesus. And here's the deal. The unsearchable riches of Christ, the might and the majesty of the creator of the universe, and he became like you and like me. He condescended to our level. He got down, dirtied his feet, bloodied his hands. To my lowest point, and this is what excites me the most, when I was my scummiest, he comes down, lifts up my head and says, come and follow me. Come and see me. Come and know me. And he's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us. Why? So that we can know him and experience the love of God in a deeper fashion, in a deeper way. Paul had a really righteous life. He says in Philippians, concerning righteousness, circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee. That's how righteous he was. He was keeping every 600 and whatever laws there were for him to keep. Concerning zeal, he was persecuting the church. I'm, I'm passionate for you, Lord. I'm ready to kill for you. And then he got knocked off a horse, and he got blinded by the light of God, and he was shown that all he needed was Christ. He says this in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 8, 9, and 10. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Dung in some translations. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Check it. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that any, by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All the righteousness of the Jews, all the zealousness and the, the religiosity of the Pharisees, all of his upbringing, the money that was spent on his training under, under this famous uh, Jewish Sanhedrin teacher called Gamaliel. Pff, rubbish, forget it. Why? So that I might know him. And he valued the knowledge of Christ greater than all of his history and his training. I think we're really conditioned in this day and age, especially in London. We're surrounded by things that would tell us, go for comfort, go for ease, go for entertainment and escapism. What do people think about me? How does that person perceive me? What should I wear? What should I eat? How comfortable am I? And this isn't a rebuke. This is just normal. I think we just need to recognize in this day and age, and we're Christians living in this world, this is bombarding us day in, day out. Reading the newspapers and you see this is how we're expected to be. Who likes pain? Anyone? Unless you're a bit twisted. (laughs) No one, it's not something we go for. I'm. Excuse me, can you give me the most uncomfortable, well, actually, I'm talking about shoes, some of you ladies, I don't know. But give me the most uncomfortable, itchy woolen jumper you can give me. It's not what you want, the nice soft cashmere, you know. Of course, these are just examples, but. Paul saw the value in knowing Christ, knowing God over comfort. I don't know it yet, I'm not there yet but I want to know. I think it was Tozer who said, Lord, I don't want you, but I want to want you. And I think a lot of us can say, well, in all honesty, my heart isn't there yet. But Lord, if you can make it there, I want to know you. I want to want to know you in that sense. How can I trade all my comfort for something that's so hard to perceive and that's not here and I can't grasp it, some reason, Paul said, "Bun it, forget it, I'm not interested. Rubbish, even if it means me suffering and dying, I'm gonna follow Jesus. Why would somebody trade that? It doesn't make sense unless you know the source of his hope, and we're gonna to touch on that in a second. Paul says to the Ephesians that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. This understanding only comes from the Spirit of God. We see in 1 John chapter 2, he writes, I write these things to you, sorry, verse 26. I write these things to you who are, uh, about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but his spirit teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, this isn't saying don't listen to sermons. This isn't saying don't sit under Pastor Rob, Ephraim, and Patrick and forget. what You don't really need them what it's saying to you is what they're teaching you is just what they themselves have dug out from the word and by the guidance of the Spirit and through prayer, we have the, the blessedness of the Holy Spirit to lead us in his word. So when we say he prays that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, actually the natural man cannot read the word and get anything from it unless the Spirit enables them to do that. And so that's his prayer, that the Spirit of God would then actually say, boom, that your eyes would be opened. And this needs to be our prayer as we look into this today. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So, let's dig into this scripture. Let's take a look at what he desires for us to know by revelation from God. We put a pen in that for a second. Often we've heard, oh, I've got this special revelation. I've got this special, you know, revelation knowledge from God. Here's revelation knowledge from God, okay? Know Jesus better than you do now. This is what Paul wants us to understand. It's not anything to any individual. It's not something specific, some prophecy, some fortune for your life. It's simply the best thing you could ever understand, and it's our God in heaven. We're not going to get there right now, unfortunately. It's going to take all eternity for us to delve in and, and, and investigate the greatness of God. But Paul seemed to see some worth in this, that he would count his life as rubbish without it. So we're going to look at three points. That's my long introduction. We're going to look at three points. What is the hope to which he has called you? He wants us to know what is the hope to which we are called. What is the hope that we have? Some of us don't know that we have a hope. Some of us think it's just right here, right now, let's go. He wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Our dad is rich, and we have an inheritance. We'll go into that. And then third is, what is he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. God's power for us to enable us to live a righteous life in him and for him. So let's look at what is the hope to which he has called you. This is what's amazing. As I was looking for commentaries, I was looking for people's opinions on this, and the best commentary I found was the Bible itself. I'm doing the word searches, and I'm looking for things, and stuff's popping up. I'm like, what? I, that correlates so perfectly with what I'm looking at. Paul's talking about something he's talked about in another book, and he's expounding on it, and he's giving further detail on it, and it's just fantastic, absolutely fantastic. This is our hope, and he speaks about it, in First Corinthians chapter two, verse nine and 10. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them to us by his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. And so we know in this, we love God because he first loved us, Right? And so when it says that eyes not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him, it's because he loves us that he's prepared those things. Romans 8, verse 18, 19, and 20. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation wakes with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, this is cool, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly to be adopted as sons the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees it's a reality you don't need to hope for it it's right there but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it eagerly with patience i added the word eagerly i don't know why sorry lord <laughs> Hope is far off. It's not something that we possess. It's not something, it's like dad's gone on a trip and he says, son, I'm going to be away a while, but I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to bring you a present. Trust me, it's going to be wicked. And the son's there and he's like, I miss dad, I miss dad. But he said he's coming back and he said he's coming back with something amazing. And he's looking forward. He's marked it on the calendar. His dad's not there. If his dad was there, he wouldn't be excited about him coming back. He's waiting, he's looking ahead and he's looking with hope and expectation for his father to return with this gift. This is hope. It's not something that we possess right now. And again, I want to go back to what Paul said. I'm going to suffer and happily suffer that I might know him. Why would you suffer for this hope? It must be a pretty special thing that you're willing to suffer for. How do we put this into our understanding? How do we, what are we willing to suffer for with a hope and an expected end I think there's a few of us in this fellowship amazingly who get to see this perfectly and have experienced it I won't in such a way because I'm a man but achy back swollen ankles morning sickness not to mention contractions and labor nine months of waiting eagerly to meet your child for the first time pain for ten hours straight As you give birth to this hope that's coming. And my sister's like, why would I do this again? And then Evie's born, my niece. Can't wait to have another child. Because the hope and that expected end is worth it. That pain, the the swollen ankles, the sore back, stretch marks. (laughs) Tiger stripes. (laughs) It's worth it. And you know the expected end is worth it. And how much more? And this is what I love about Paul. He sees what I don't see. He clearly sees that this hope is massive. He's willing to be beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, left in the sea for three days and three nights. This is his hope. And he sees it. And he's saying, I want you to know the hope that you have in God. This is his prayer. And I want to make it my prayer because I'm not there right now. But we can be as we ask God. We look forward and endure the suffering here because the hope is worth it. Let me read some scriptures to you. So get your reading glasses on. Revelation chapter 21, verse one to seven. From the throne, saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." And he was sealed. Sorry, he was seated on the throne. He who was seated on the throne said, "Behold, I am making all things new." Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To one who conquers will have this, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Now flip over to the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 1 to 5. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. There will be no need. They will need no lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, If in Christ we have hope only here, we are of all people to be most pitied. Go get drunk, go eat, go be merry, because tomorrow you're just dead. This isn't the case. We have a hope, an eternal hope that's coming. And this is what excites me, and I think this is what I forgot for a while. A promise of forgiveness, which we have now. We have a sense of forgiveness. I know I'm forgiven. But when it comes to judgment day, and I'm walking past that judgment seat, knowing actually I don't have to stop here. I can keep going. That's going to be the day where I can see my forgiveness. And I see the hands that were pierced, and the side That was pierced. And it's actual. I I hold the hope. So this life is not it, it's a vapor. And we will see him and we will walk with him. The psalmist said, I will be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. He means awakening from death. He means awakening from, uh, obviously, when we die, we will wake up and we will be like him spotless, pure, righteous, holy in his presence. Enjoying his glory. And for a long time, I took this for granted. I took this hope for granted. I grew up in a Calvary Chapel. My, my parents were all about Calvary Chapel growing up. It was Chuck Smith and Chuck Missler. And, um, my dad did a, um, an internship in the 80s and went over to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa and worked at the bookshop there for a while. And we had Chuck tapes. It was just, and Calvary likes to major on end times. They like to major on the rapture. And I loved it as a kid. And growing up as a Christian, I loved it. I'm like, yes, Jesus is coming back. We're going to get raptured. This is going to be amazing. And then I became, you know, in my mid early to mid-20s, and I started to be like, yeah, Jesus is coming back. Great. Okay, cool. Yeah, the rapture. Cool. I, what is it pre? Is it mid? Is it post-trib? I don't know. And I forgot the expectation and the hope of this fact, that Jesus is coming back Regardless of your point on the rapture, the second coming is real. The resurrection is real. We will be resurrected. Maybe we'll get caught up, and most certainly we'll get taken out of the grave and resurrected up to him. And this is what happened. I became dry. I became frustrated. I started looking elsewhere for that hope. My loss of joy in him, my loss of hope in his promises, my loss of sight of the end, And then Richard Thomas smashed it. If you can read and go and listen to the message that he taught at Easter on um, the resurrection and the transformation that takes place at the resurrection, oh my gosh, blew my mind. Because it reminded me of the fact of, yes, I'm scummy. Yes, I am wretched. Yes, I need help. And yet Jesus is that help. And as much as when you have a seed, it's dead, crusty, and dry, and then you plant it, and it becomes a flower, such a metamorphosis, forget caterpillars and butterflies, I'm talking about something dead and crusty, and then becoming this plant, beautiful plant. That's what will happen to us, obviously on such a greater scale. And it's not worthy to be compared. We're like that crusty, dry seed. And then when the resurrection takes place, we will be glorified. Glorified in our glorified bodies. I've got lots to say about my body, but I won't. (laughs) But I'm looking forward to that day. We will be with him, and we will be like him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Read with me on this one. This is amazing. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. I did say that, I think. Love it. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gave us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Your hope is not in vain. We look forward. We don't have it now. But he wants us to know the hope. Then he wants us to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are the riches that we have? There's two ways of looking at this and I didn't actually see it the first time because he says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is kind of cool. Check it out. Amazingly, the first thing is that we are the Lord's inheritance. We are his inheritance. He treasures us so highly and values us who seemingly have no inherent worth. I know there's those, there are those that would tell you, oh, you know what, you, you're, you're worth so much, that's, why Jesus, that's how much you're worth to God. I'm sorry to break that fantasy. It's not true. You are not worth that much. But this is what's amazing. He puts that worth on you. He says, you don't deserve this. You do not earn this. There isn't a divine spark in you somewhere. You know, I'm not like this amazing person really inside. I'm really special. (laughs) The Lord's like, no, Tim. I have to speak to myself first because otherwise I'm a hypocrite. Tim, you're not special, but I love you this much because I have chosen to put my love upon you. Not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast, right? Right? And he gets to, I got this idea, and it was um, Dave Guzik, one of the pastors out in the States, who said, um, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, he pointed to this. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set bounds of the people to the number of the children of Israel. Check it. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. What? I'm your inheritance? I'm your portion? Lord, you've got a bum deal. That's like not good. <laughs> but that's how much he treasures us and that's how much he's put on us. That's grace. And I had to touch on that because I think that kind of blew my mind a little bit and helped me to say a bit differently. But then there's secondly, there's the other way of looking at it which is what I did naturally went this way. The inheritance that we have based on the abundant riches of Christ Okay, let's, let's picture a story. You have a man. Let's say it's you, whoever you are. You're a man. You're a drug addict. You're seated on, by the side of King's Cross. You've stolen to fund your drug habit. You're not a nice person. You're, you're advantageous. You take opportunity whenever you can to get what you want. And you're arrested And actually, it's Roman times, so when you're arrested then and the crime is severe enough and you're guilty enough, you're actually put into the slave trade. So now you've been working as a slave, serving under hard masters for a while, and that's caused you actually to grow bitter and hard, and you've done worse things. You've attacked your master at one point, so now you're the lowest of the slaves. No one wants you, and you're on the stand, being sold, and you're at bargain price. This is like worse than Primark price. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> and this rich merchant comes through, and he's got his hefty bag of gold, and he goes to the slave trader, and he gives, him, and the, the slave trader's looking at this bag of gold, and he, the rich man points to you. The slave trader's like, this guy doesn't know what he's getting, clearly, and the rich man knows what he's after. He's very specific, pays way over price. Picks you, says, "Come." So you then get taken with him. You go to his home, this huge, stately manor, this villa. And you're washed, you're cleaned up, you're shaved, um, given new clothes. And he says, "Go." You know, the servants say, "Go and sit." Um, we go into the dining room. The master's waiting for you, and you're at the the the, the right hand side, where the sun sits. And you're like, "What? Well, this is ridiculous. I should be eating downstairs with the dogs." And you go up. And you sit next to the, 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 this, this rich merchant and he actually realised at this point that it's the king. And the king greets you as you come in, gives you a hug, embraces you and sits down opposite this other person who looks princely, who looks kingly. And you sit there feeling way out of place, even the clothes, you're just like, what, this isn't right, I'm not. And he says, you're my son, I've bought you and actually I've already filled out the adoption papers so that legally you're mine. And all that you see, oh, opposite you, this is your other brother. This is Israel. Now you're part of this family. And you're thinking, I don't deserve this. This is ridiculous. And he's like, no, you don't deserve it, but I love you. And then from that point onward, you're treated like a son. Regardless of how you received it, regardless of how you perceive it, this was the fact. You were chosen, you were cleaned up, and you were made a son. Maybe that helps you understand a little bit of the riches of our inheritance in the saints. (laughs) Previously, it was not ours. It was for Israel. We weren't chosen. He chose Israel through Abraham, through Isaac and Jacob, the 12 sons. Pride of place. They were given the law. They were given the temple. They were given the sacrificial system. They had access to God through the sacrifices on Yom Kippur on one day of the year. We didn't. How was a man out in wherever supposed to come and know God except to go through the temple where he was shunned anyway? And I wanted to give us that example because this was written to Gentiles. This was written to non-Jews specifically. And that's us. This is who we are now. Graciously added into that family line. This is our identity. And this is huge Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. I'll tell you about it in a minute. We're no longer the rotten sinner. We're no longer the thief, the drug addict, the habitual liar, the sex addict. We're no longer the arrogant, abusive husband, the jealous, backbiting neighbor. We're no longer that person. This is not what defines you. We belong to him, and he calls us son. And we stand there, and it says, we were reading in in Revelation, that we have his name on our foreheads, stamped, approved, my boy, my daughter, love him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, it says in Galatians chapter 2. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So many of us have been living under a cloud of our own guilt and of our own sin and our wretchedness, our abuse. Some of us have been abused. Our shame. Um, it's been about two years since I've taught a sermon because I screwed up a while back. I made some big mistakes. And I, it was right that I stepped down for a bit. But for a long time, I was living under this shadow of my wretchedness my shame. And I identified myself with my sin. I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm this, I'm this, and this. But I've done this. This is who I, This is what forms my identity. And I've been listening. And this is something I, you guys should really check out. I know a lot of people have qualms with Mark Driscoll. He can say a, bit, a few stupid things sometimes. Um, don't we all? <laughs> um, but his Ephesians series, and it's called, Who Do You Think You Are? on Ephesians and it has blown so really most of this is plagiarism I'm taking half of what he said and just passing it on to you but I think he did it from someone else and from the Bible anyway so it's all good and he said this and it blew my mind you are not your abusive father you are not your worst crime you are not the most disgusting sin you have ever committed this is not who you are this does not define you. This is, does not make up your identity. Something you've done, something you've had to carry for a while, but we can drop it and know that we are Christ's. We belong to him. I can walk around and say, I belong to Jesus. I don't care what you say. I don't care what I've done. I belong to him. So, this, And this has really changed my understanding, and, and, and a lot of the things that I've been, have really been heavy on my heart is that I belong to Jesus. And this is part of our glorious inheritance with the saints, the riches of that inheritance. And something that is helping me with this is in Romans chapter 12. It says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When I neglect fellowship, when I neglect Bible study and and, and Bible reading, and when I neglect prayer, I start to be conformed, like I said earlier, to the norm of this world. Think this way. Look this way. Act this way. Wonder who's thinking of you that way. Hmm. And you feel a separation from God. The separation doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. It's false. We are in Christ as believers. And he says here, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, like it says in the Psalms. You know, he meditates in the word day and night, and is like a tree planted by the rivers of water, who bears forth his fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. But the ungodly are not so; but they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. And this is where I need—if I want to start living in these riches and understanding this hope and understanding this inheritance that I have and the riches of God, I need to be here. I need to be in my word. I need to be in prayer. Because otherwise my mind will not be transformed. It says wash, when husbands, wash your wives in the water of the word, sanctifying her. And it's what the Lord does to us because we're his bride, right? Washing us in his word as we're sanctified, as our minds are being renewed day by day. As soon as I stop reading the word, not because I want to be accepted, I am accepted. Done deal. But because I want to walk in the promises of God, because I want to understand how loved I am and accepted, and then go out and say, "Hey, guess what? like, an, like a crazy person, want, Jesus loves you, and not be ashamed because this is your identity." I love it in Song of Solomon, the Shulamite woman, the, the unattractive, unappealing woman that everyone's like, "Ah, eh. the beloved comes, and, and she says, "I am my beloveds, and he is mine." And this is the same relationship we have with Jesus. I am my beloved's. I belong to him, and he is mine. And the third point in this, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That you may know. Okay, let's get this straight. I'm blessed with a hope of Christ's return. A hope of this resurrection a hope of new life, forgiveness of sin, blessed with an inheritance, a new identity adopted into the household of God, loved with the great love with which he loves his own son with. And I know this why? Come on now, these are just words. These are, this is big talk. This is like, I can't see it. It's not here. I don't understand. Like, come on. We do not serve an impotent God, we do not serve a God that makes false promises. And I think this is hard for some of us to understand, especially when thinking of God as a father. We've had bad fathers who broke promises, who were not potent in any way. They had no power, no authority. And now you're asking me to look at God in this way? Come on, this is hard for me to grasp and take in. How was this power displayed? How do we know that God will do what he said he would do? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus had power over death and it was witnessed by many, not just the disciples but those as he walked around for for days afterwards and, 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 and his resurrected body and we see in the gospels that he defeated death, he defeated sin and he defeated Satan as we read earlier. Where is your sting? Death. Sin, where is your power? And this same power of God now dwells in us. We read it earlier and it's actually the bottom part of this. And he goes on to say that you would know what is the immeasurable in verse um, 19 of Ephesians chapter 1. That you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over, that, over all things in the church, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And he goes on. This sentence doesn't stop. As you read through chapter 2, you realize that you know he goes on and says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you now walked, and how wretched we were, and then you were brought up in the newness of life, God being rich in mercy because of the great love, and he just goes on and on, and it's the English grammatically sense, (laughs) see, it's awful, it's just comma, 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 English majors will hate it, but he just can't contain it, he can't stop, he has to just declare the power and the greatness of God. I believe in miracles, I believe in the supernatural, I believe God is able to do amazing things, but I actually believe that it's substandard to what I mentioned earlier, a wretched sinner coming to new life. Nothing is more of a miracle than a soul who was lost getting saved I believe that God heals. I believe that he can make limbs reappear from nowhere. I believe in prophecy. I believe in words of knowledge. I believe in the gift of tongues. But I also believe more strongly in the power of God to resurrect the dead. And I think this is key. Often I want to be titillated and teased by what feels amazing. And then I'm looking for the next Experience and the next experience. And I'm forgetting that actually the most, impo- most powerful, most important thing was that God raised me from the dead and will raise me again in newness of life. And in that security and that knowledge of that power, we then can rest. I don't need to see pops and whistles every other week. I don't need to. And I love it when it happens. Don't get me wrong. I love seeing the power of God displayed in, in, in miracles and, and majesty and wonder. But... Let's say I don't for a few months. Let's say, as in Acts, there were long periods between these miraculous things taking place. Is okay. Am I still walking in the Spirit of God? Am I still, are me and him okay? Because I haven't seen anything exciting and expressive for a while. Well, yeah. Because I'm right here with him right now. And I'm talking to him. And he's blessing me and he's forgiving me and he's dealing with my sin day by day. And that's a miracle in and of itself. I picture my dad, and we had an interesting love hate relationship. And he was a tough guy to live with. He was difficult, and he made a lot of mistakes, but he never wavered on bring on the second coming. That was his phrase. It was his get out phrase. Anything bad happen? Bring on the second coming. And that's a miracle. That a man like my dad, and anyone who knew him, anybody who knew him would know he was a difficult guy. And as his son, I know more than you do. Stuff that he did. And this isn't me bashing my dad. I love him. He's with the Lord. But this is a miracle. Knowing what my dad came from to Christ, and as a Christian, not a great one, throughout the, his life, still held on to the hope by God's grace, still clung to the robe of Jesus just about. And Lord said, that's my boy. And now he's seated with Christ in the heavens at his side. And I can rejoice at this miracle. And somebody, um, what was it? We had the memorial service for my dad when he passed away. It was about a year ago. And um, it was a blessing. It was lovely. It was joyful. It was just wonderful. And um, somebody, a good friend of ours that I've known from, from when I was a kid, a guy called Anthony Forsyth. Some of you know him. I was talking to him. I said, yeah, I'm sure dad would have picked holes in it. And he went, not anymore, he wouldn't. Because he is no longer the man he was. He is not that husk, that seed. The power of God has translated him into the heavens. And then since then, my perspective of heaven has changed. Because I had to experience death for the first time in my life, pretty much. And with somebody who meant so much to me, it it was incredible. This is the great power that's bestowed on us. Basking, I can just picture my dad basking in the glory of God. Second coming, don't worry about it, (laughs) because I'm here. (laughs) Previously in Ephesians, we see that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Actually, let's read that. Go back to the beginning of Ephesians 1. We're going to read this passage, just and we can realize actually what blessings we have and have been given. But then I'm going to major on this one point. Blessed be the God and Father, starting from verse 3, sorry, for chapter 1 verse, uh, of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be homely, holy and blameless before him in love. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have in- obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed in the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is my sermon. You could just read that and go away and... That's it. But what he says here is that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, I'm going to go out and I'm going to say I want to buy someone's car. And I put a little note in the thing. that says, I want to buy your car. And I leave my number. And then um, they call me back. And and they're like, well, how do I know you're serious? I said, well, okay, I haven't got the money right now. But I'm going to come and lay a deposit. I'm going to lay some earnest money down and say, look, here's 500 quid. I'm going to come back in a week and buy your car otherwise he'd be like hold the car for me I'm buying it i ain't holding it for you you're not coming back but for me to say I'm coming back for you you put the 500 down and you say cool it's earnest money it's a guarantee and as we know the spirit lives in us we see the evidence of the spirit in our lives the way that he leads us to Christ you're tempted to sin and you've got that worship song in your head that just won't go away And you know as you read the word, there's things popping out of you that you're getting, you're understanding that you shouldn't understand. I'm like, whoa, hold on. That's amazing. You know the Spirit's in you and that's proof and that's evidence of Jesus saying, I'm coming back for you. And that's his power working in us and through us. That's part of that power that we have. So all that to say, this is him saying, I've got you. And my power is for you. The same and and I think my problem is that I don't believe it. I don't draw near to him and hold on to him. I don't I don't avail myself of his resources. I avoid Christian fellowship. I'm lazy to pick up the word. We sing it all the time, and I just want to read out the last verse of In Christ Alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. That you may know him. That you may know what is the hope that you may know what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints, that you may know what is the power towards us who believe, and that we might stand on his promises and stand on his love. Our enemy, though, this is coming to a close, doesn't want us to know. He doesn't want us to understand. He doesn't want us to have hope. He doesn't want us to realize the resources at our disposal in the power of God, and we're being robbed blindly because we just let him and the last chapter of Ephesians he talks about the armor of God and we're not going to go into it much but just as a way of check it out look at Ephesians chapter 6 knowledge of our provision in Christ the study of his word fellowship and prayer will equip us will help us to stand and overcome sin and walk in the promises of God and not be like the Israelites. I said, God, there's giants in the land. I'm not going in there. Yes, there's giants. And as we will seek to, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And part of me doesn't want that. And I'm like, no, forget it. I don't want to walk in that promise. But part of me wants to be like Caleb and Joshua and look at the giants and, and those monumental sins in my life that need to be overcome. And, and it's like, it's bread for us. It's Bread for us. Let's go. And Moses even said, well, unless you go with me, don't take me from here. But if you're going with us, let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. But we do have an adversary. So check out Ephesians chapter 6, and that's another study for another time, I guess. But there is a downside to this. Some of you here don't know Jesus. Some of you here don't know the forgiveness of sin. You don't know the hope of God. You don't get excited when you hear of Jesus returning. You're either like, yeah, whatever, it's a load of rubbish, or you're like, Phew, "Nah, man, that's not, a, that's not a glorious day. Some of you don't know that, that what it is to be a son because you are not sons. In fact, you are sons, you're sons of disobedience, rebelling against God, turning your back on him, willfully, knowingly doing hating God, really, And you will never experience the power of God on your behalf and in your interest. That's heavy. But you can. You can know. You can have the hope. And you can rejoice with us at the thought of Jesus returning. You can experience forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin. You can have hope and power from God on, in your behalf, in your favor. If you recognize your sin, if you recognize your broken heart and your busted ways, and as you recognize who Jesus is, and you turn to him and you repent, and you, that basically means, see that there? The sex, the drugs, the lies, forget it. You turn toward God and you embrace him and you call on the name of Jesus. It says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. So that you can with us here, although we know we're a bit rubbish, we can stand and say, yes, we've got the Lord. We're excited about seeing him. So don't be left out. Don't think, oh, it's not for me. Because it is if you believe. If it, it is if you repent. It is if you let him come into your life and change your life. And with that, let's close. We're gonna pray. Lord, um, we have an abundance in you. But more importantly, we have you. So Jesus, we just ask that you would help us to draw near to you. Much of me doesn't want to draw near to you, but I want to want you. I want to have a longing for you. I want to walk in you in richness of life. So Lord, I pray that you would grant us here the spirit of revelation and the knowledge of you, that we would have the eyes of our understanding enlightened, that we might know you and your hope and our inheritance and your power. And Lord, that we would stop being entertained by rubbish and start being enamored and in awe of your greatness. And I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that your love was displayed on the cross. And I thank you that you're coming again. And I thank you that your spirit is here right now with us as our comfort and as our our guide. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this family, Lord, that I get to be here in safety and comfort with people who love me, talking about your love, sharing your grace, Thank you for the pastors here who facilitate times like this where we can just enjoy you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, we're going to just close in one more song. Sorry, amen. Please. And just
0: as Tim um, gets ready to lead us in that final song, I just want to acknowledge something that has really kind of struck me very clearly. Um, Ben last week um he opened his message and the the opening verse um the the first sentence the end of all things is at hand therefore and um and if you were in austria and you haven't um, seen the message yet it's it's required viewing you have to watch that message and if you weren't in austria and you haven't seen it you have to watch that message um and then throughout the week, First Thessalonians starts with chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 1, um, Paul commends the Thessalonians for their expectation of Christ's coming, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And he, he goes on to speak about how to live in light of that. And then he closes the the, the, the book in chapter 5 with, The coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord will not come as a thief in the night to those who are in the light. It will come as a thief in the night to those who are in darkness. And then today, Tim reminds us of the hope that we have, the earnest expectation we have. And the riches of Christ's inheritance that we are able to enjoy in the meantime. And just kind of threading these these messages together and appreciating that um, it seems really clear that the Lord is really trying to um, speak to our hearts in regards to his coming and who we're to be. And uh, the fact that we can have assurance in him as we look forward to his coming and that... There is an abundance abundance of provision that we have now that we are to be working out rather than just complacently waiting for his coming. And um, maybe in light of that, you need to take a moment to just reflect in terms of where are you at? Where are you at in the light of Christ's coming? Do you actually fear the coming of Christ? Because you, you, you just find yourself feeling so unfaithful. Maybe you're not in relationship with God. And the prospect of Christ's coming is actually a very scary one. As somebody said in a song, when Christ comes back, it's going to be like scenes from Troy. And some of you have seen the film or at least heard the story, Christ is coming back in full battle array. And he is going to make war with those who remain in defiance against him. So it's not going to be, you know, all roses. Um, that That's for those who are in right relationship with him. But either way, uh, we are to expect his coming And as Tim said, it's it's such that we can be people who hear this stuff and, you know, kind of feel like Tim did in that season of his life. Yeah, Jesus is coming. Yeah. and, And it really means nothing to us. Or very little. And so where are you at in the light of Christ coming? Jesus is coming back. And... For those of us that know him, there's a work to be done. There's riches that he's provided. There's assurance that he's given. He sealed us with his spirit and we are without excuse to draw on his grace that he's poured out so lavishly. I mean, bruv, that illustration, cheese and bread. Absolutely powerful. To be delivered from our sin and adopted into the family, and brought to the table, and written into the will, (laughs) the inheritance is ours. Let's pray. Father God, the very reason for our existence is to worship you, the glorious one, And Lord, you have um, orchestrated all creation in order that your, your glory would be displayed, Lord. The very reality of your existence is displayed in that which was made. And yet, Lord, you didn't stop there, but you gave your son And he took on the likeness of sinful flesh, became a man and lived among us in time and space. And yet, Lord, you didn't stop there. You caused him to be killed for our sin and raised for our justification. And yet, Lord, you didn't stop there. You gave your spirit to all who believe upon your name. And you've caused caused them to be seated in heavenly places, in relationship with you. Able to walk with you daily and to know you for ourselves. And so Lord, this is our prayer today. That we would know you that we would know you Lord and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering that Lord we would be conformed to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ and not to that of this world and that in knowing you Lord we would make you known Thank you, Lord, for this privilege. And thank you, Lord, for the glorious expectation that, Lord, one day we will know you as we are known, completely and utterly, unreservedly. And, Lord, my prayer is today for those who do not know you, that you would um have so spoken through Tim and for all that's been shared, Lord, that they would be drawn to you by their spirit today, by your spirit today, Lord. And that their hearts would be open and submissive and surrendered. And may this be true for us all, Lord, we pray. Now and throughout this week and forevermore. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.